Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? All right. My name is Charles. I'm the high school pastor here at Venture. Excited to be hopping into the James series this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to James chapter number one. If you're using the Bible in the book rack in front of you, that's going to be page 1199. Been a high school pastor, I think 16 years, something like that. Uh, And honestly, I don't do a lot of like one-on-one pastoral counseling with young ladies for a handful of reasons. But as I've been preparing this week, there's been two conversations that stuck out of my mind. One conversation was years ago, uh, finishing up ministry at a church up in the East Bay. And we do ministry, we did ministry there the same way that we do ministry here where we have worship and teaching. And then after that, we went to small groups and one young lady pulled me aside before uh, or right after the message, before they went off to the small groups, sat me down and said, hey, Charles, um, I had something I wanna bring to your attention. Um, Some days I identify as a girl Some days I identify as a boy and based on that identification, I don't know what small group I should go to. And this was years ago. It was before uh, transgender issues were really front and center in the world. And so I was kind of got caught off guard. I was like, man, you know what? Uh, I actually haven't done a lot of thinking or reading about, man, how I should respond to a situation like this. But uh, I would love to take some time, go back, figure out what does the Bible say about, you know, gender identities and all of that. And I I would love to sit back down with you and just chat through what the Bible says. Would that be okay? And, And with utmost confidence, she looks at me and she says, honestly, I know what I believe. Uh, I just want to let you know where I was at. And I was just kind of taken back by it and just, that was it. No interest to know what the Bible says. I know what I believe. That's that. Another young lady had a very different response. She had gone through some significant difficulties in her life, a little bit, uh, not a little bit, a difficult time of, uh, difficult time of mourning that came from from some sexual abuse that was in her life. And a year after this event, she's sitting in my office and she's asking me, Charles, how do I forgive? How, How do I, take this pain and really run it through just what God is calling me to do. And how do I forgive the person that's wronged me? So we went through uh, what the Bible says about forgiveness, how Jesus said on the cross, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Ephesians, where, where it talks about how we forgive just as Christ forgave us. And, and the attitude was totally different where there was a desire to receive, a desire to do what the Bible asks us to do. And I remember sitting there talking to her about actually practicing forgiveness and just the hope that I had for her, that this pain, this frustration, this season of just difficulty that she's gone through, of of not anything that she's done wrong herself, that if she were able to practice forgiveness, man, what a weight would be lifted off of her shoulders. What a difference that would make in her life. What freedom would come if she just did what the Bible said. As I talked to her about it, there was just an eager anticipation to do what the Bible said. Two girls 
two significantly different responses towards the word of God. And uh, judgment is not left up to us. But man, if I were betting, I would bet that the latter girl has a more vibrant and valuable faith and is further along the road to experiencing life more abundantly like Jesus promised. Here in our passage in James this morning, we're gonna be looking about, we're gonna be looking at how we are to receive the word of God. James is passionate about this topic. And as his church is going through trials, is going through temptations, he comes in in this passage and he strongly urges his church to be people who receive the implanted word of God. Let's hop into the book of James. James chapter number one, we're gonna start in verse 19. We're gonna read all the way down to verse 27. James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep, one's un, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Would you pray with me? Dear God, as we come to an important topic, would you speak to our hearts, Lord? Would we hear from you that authoritative, compelling voice that is inviting us into life? And Lord, would we do what you say? Praising in your name, amen. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing that I want to start off with is James in his uh, three-step plan to have us receive and do the word starts off with this, get rid of anger and wickedness. Starts off with anger and he says, pump the brakes on anger. Let me go back here. I'll get to that point in a little bit. James starts off this passage with three commands. Let everybody be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And initially it seems like these three ideas are disconnected from what comes next. But if I can just ask you one question, I think that you'll see how what James is saying about anger is intricately, is is importantly connected to what he says about receiving the word. Here's my question. Have you ever tried to give angry people advice? 
I'm not talking about when, when the heat of the moment has passed, when cooler heads are prevailing. I'm talking about right as like eyes are big, ears are hot, and they're feeling that anger. And you just come in with, you know, that constructive criticism, you know, just something to help them grow in this moment. My question is, how's that gonna work out for you? Not well at all. Most of the people in this stage of my life that I'm trying to give uh, parental advice to while they're angry, they all share my last name. And in that moment, it's kind of priceless. You know, you know that your kid's already angry and you call them back because you wanna help them to understand the situation. And in that moment when they're standing there and they know if they, if they react, they're only gonna get into more trouble. So they're just standing there, but on the inside, you know, I'm not listening to you at all, dad. We know that anger affects our ability to hear. Because of that, James reminds his church, let's be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because our anger rarely gets the results that God wants. It does not produce the righteousness of God. Just taken by themselves, this advice from James is good advice. I like Warren Wearsby's quote. He says, temper is such a valuable thing. It is a shame to lose it. Living in our society right now, could you imagine what would happen if our family, if our friends, if our coworker, if the Instagram and Twitterverse, if our news anchor and politicians just listened to this advice from, from James, hey, pump the brakes on your anger, slow it down a little bit, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But again, James isn't simply talking about our reaction for our reaction state. He's talking about these knee-jerk reactions because in understanding our knee-jerk reactions, it tells us something about our heart. When our knee-jerk reaction is anger, what James is getting at is that person cannot or has trouble with hearing God. You show me someone who flies off the rail the moment they get cut off and there's just anger welling up inside of them. And I'll show you somebody who has trouble hearing from God. You show me somebody who berates the barista for getting their drink wrong. I order non-fat milk and this is almond milk. You show me a person who's getting angry over that and I'll show you somebody who, gets, who, who has trouble hearing from God. You show me somebody who is constantly angry at the other political party and I'll show you someone who has trouble hearing from God. You show me someone whose preferred method of communicating with their kids is yelling at them and letting them know how passionate the parent is about this issue. And I'll show you someone who's having trouble hearing from God. James says, it is time to get rid of this anger because anger interferes with our ability to hear from God. He says, get rid of it. But then he adds some other things that we're to get rid of as well. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put away literally means to take off. The word here, filthiness, is the only place that that Greek word is used in our New Testament, but it has a picture of just filthy clothes. 
The picture is to take off the filthy jacket that you've been working in the yard all day and just get it out of the house. It doesn't belong here, throw it into the washing machine, get rid of that filthiness. He says also the rampant wickedness, uh, abundant malice might be another way to translate it. So the wickedness is not just like a general idea of evil, but more so this malicious intent towards other people, this malice goes back to what James is saying about anger. I don't know about you, but when I read verses like 21 here that put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, I get a little bit of PTSD from my, uh, from my fundamentalist days. I grew up in a church uh, that was extraordinarily conservative and our particular brand of Christianity was one that preached hard against sin. And when they would come to a passage like this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, the pastor could easily go on a 20 minute rant where at times you're wondering, I'm afraid that this guy is gonna pass out. I'm worried for his health. But they, just the church world that I grew up, like anger and, anger and fiery preaching over sin, like the phrase hellfire and damnation preaching, uh, my church perfected that art. As growing up in that circle, I always just had trouble with it because I always knew like, hey, Jesus said that we're supposed to be known for our love one for another. And there's just something about the tone of the preacher with veins popping out of his neck, preaching hard against sin. That I was like, I don't know like if this jives with the love of God. So after growing up in independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist churches and nothing against their theology, just against their execution of how they go about uh, presenting uh, the messages that they're passionate about, after growing up and then realizing, just because I grew up and it doesn't mean I have to stay in it, I left that movement and started, and started working at more mainstream evangelical churches, uh, churches much like Venture, and for 13 years now, I've been in this church world, but my fear is this, that, that in, my, in my desire to escape the, the angry rhetoric that was frequently coming out of the pulpit and joining a, joining a more uh, evangelical, easy going church, that the pendulum might've swung a little bit too far in the other direction. That we might not have the nerve to say what needs to be said in regards to the junk that frequently clogs up our life. And so I think just as a pastor, I need to be comfortable. And as a church, we all need to be comfortable with feeling strongly and expressing strongly what the scripture, what the author scriptures say equally strongly. That, hey, get rid of anger. If your family, your friends, your coworkers are constantly walking around on eggshells, it's not because they don't understand how stressed you are. It's probably because you have a problem with anger. And that anger is something that needs to be dealt with. Man, as, as I've been reading about just this idea of filthiness, uh, this is an area that's been challenging in my, in my life this week, especially with the entertainment choices that I allow in my household that James here just says, get rid of all filthiness. He says, get rid of that wickedness, that malice. The greatest commandment in scripture is to love God and love others. It's not okay to have a list of people that you hate. Get rid of that will wickedness, get rid of that malice. 
Diane Clemens, our rock star middle school pastor, was teaching chapel for middle school this week and was talking about how sin is like garbage. And the beauty about living in a developing, developed country is that we get to take our garbage out to the curb and it magically disappears. With that, I, I wanna say what James is saying is get rid of your garbage. Take care of that anger, that filth, that wickedness, that malice, get it out of your life because your ability to hear God depends on that. Step one is to get rid of the anger and wickedness. And he goes on to step two and he says, receive the word. Again, there in verse 21, receive with meekness, the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. If you weren't raised in church, this sentence might sound a little bit clunky, receive with meekness the implanted word. What James here is saying is simple enough. Eagerly accept the teachings of scripture. Eagerly accept it. Don't tentatively accept it. Don't come in with an attitude of doubt. Eagerly accept the teachings of scripture. When James uses this phrase, the implanted word, he's calling us back to one of the parables that Jesus told. Remember the parable of the sower where Jesus talked about the sower who goes out and he grabs seed and he throws it liberally and he throws it on four different kinds of soil. He throws it along the path. He throws it into shallow soil. He throws it into thorny soil. And last of all, he throws it into good soil. And Jesus makes it, makes it clear as he's telling that story, the seed that is planted is the word of God. And the parable that Jesus is telling has the same message that James is giving us in this passage. He says, Out the reception of the word, how one receives the implanted word makes the difference in whether or not there's going to be a harvest. That of the four soil types, only one of the soils actually had a harvest. It was only the good, good seed, or excuse me, the good ground that produced a harvest. So James says, receive the word. Just like in any conversation, communication is a two-way street. It requires a clear communication, but then it requires active listening. Somebody who's leaning in and seeking to understand what's being said. God's responsibility is to preserve his message for us. We have that in the 66 books that are, that are in between the leather bindings of our Bibles. God has preserved his message for us, but that's only half of the equation. The other half is our eager receptivity to receive the word of God. <clears throat> As we look into the Bible, we see that listen is a frequent biblical command. I talked to you guys about the parable of the sower. Multiple times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus comes again and again with his parables. And the point of the parable was, hey, pay attention to what I'm saying here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I, I, find, it, I find it interesting that, that in Deuteronomy 6, and uh, if you're unfamiliar with this passage, this is a very important passage for the Jews starting in the time of Moses. This is the Shema. It's the prayer that the faithful Jewish people would pray every single morning. 
And here's how that prayer starts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. This prayer starts off with just a request that I think God knows we need. Listen up, <laughs> pay attention. Like the parent who's pleading with their angry kid, would, would you listen to me? Listen is a frequently repeated command in scripture. But not only that, here's the part that genuinely terrifies me a little bit. The salvation of our souls depends on our listening. The salvation of our souls depends on our listening. Jesus says, receive with meekness the implanted words, which is able to save your souls. Throughout the Bible, when you look at the idea of salvation, uh, frequently salvation will be split up into different time sections, different, different ways of uh, viewing how salvation works. There's many passages that look at salvation in the past tense. You have been saved. It is something that is done, that God has finished the work. But there's also parts in the Bible where it says you are continuing to be saved. And there's even parts of the Bible, look in Romans chapter eight. In Romans chapter eight, all three of these kind of timestamps will be seen there in that passage where we will be saved. And so salvation, it's a mystery because yes, at one point we step from darkness into light. We go from being children of wrath to children of God and we are justified, we are saved. But that is, a, but in addition to that, there is an ongoing work of salvation. Paul says it clearly in Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Are you receiving the word of God? because it's the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. Charles, are you saying that like the reception of God's word is what's going to save me? Well, I'm, I'm not saying that, James is saying that. He said, well, what about salvation not being something that is of works, that it's all of grace, it's all through faith. What about that? Paul makes that clear. It's God who's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so this is a work of God, but we have a part to play. If you're saying, Charles, I don't understand how faith and works fit together, don't worry. That's coming up in a couple of weeks and James will dive into that in depth. For our, the purpose of our time this morning, I just want to say what the scripture says, that the salvation of our souls depends on our listening. Not only does he say, make this point about salvation, but he also goes on to step three and says, hey, here's, here's where the rubber hits the road. Be a doer. I don't know if it's uh, inappropriate to assume the tone that James is giving in this passage. But when I, read, uh, when I read this passage, specifically from 22 down to verse 25, uh, I imagine 2015 Shia LaBeouf. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. In 2015, Shia LaBeouf uh, was actually recording little shorts for, uh, it, it was like a school project for a school in London. And uh, one of the little 
recording clips that he recorded for this project went viral. Shia LaBeouf there in all of his Transformers glory with a little ponytail, one of those really expensive shirts that looks like uh, it's you know falling apart and tattered jeans and everything. He stands in front of a green screen and, and yells, just do it. Don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday you said tomorrow, just do it. And it's fantastic. Uh, it went all over the internet because it was on a green screen. People transposed it onto all different types of memes with Shia LaBeouf flexing and doing all types of ridiculous hand motions. Uh, but just the tone of it was fantastic. Reading through the comments, there were so many people who were like, I listened to this every morning while I was going through med school and it's what helped get me through. I was like, okay, you know that it was a joke, right? Like joke or not. Uh, that tone of Shia LaBeouf saying, just, I can't even do it seriously. Uh, that tone of passionately pleading for action and not just for thinking is the tone that I think James takes this passage in. And the reason that I think that is because James says that there's three things that are at stake for whether or not we are doers of the word. Our integrity is at stake, our freedom is at stake, and the credibility of Christianity as a whole is at stake. Starting with, starting with, uh, starting with our integrity. James says, familiarity with the Bible may lead to self-deception. Familiarity with the Bible may lead to self-deception. He says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. As with everything in life, everything. It's not what you know that makes the difference. It's what you do. The, the, the saying is, knowing is half the battle. But what I wanna point out is, it's half of the battle. The other half is putting it into action, especially as us who, especially as a people who live in the information age, where we have so much information that's available to us. I'm a podcast nerd. I love podcasts. There's nothing better in a day than putting in podcasts, doing random chores around the house, and just like filling your head with information. But again, knowing is good. Knowing is half the battle, but it's only half of the battle especially being here at a church that highly values biblical teaching. We are a church that the majority of our service on a Sunday morning is dedicated to the opening of the word of God and making sure that God's people understand God's word. And that is good and important, but knowing is half of the battle. I'd honestly say it's the easier half. Stephen Ambrose is the author who wrote uh, the book Band of Brothers that later turned on the HBO special. It's just a World War II story of, I think it's 101st Airborne. I could be getting that wrong. Don't correct me. It's okay. It's not key to the story. Uh, he also wrote a book on D-Day where the allied invasion of Normandy uh, really made the defining change in the tides of the war. And in the book talking about D-Day, he goes into detailed description of all of the planning that was required for a successful invasion of Normandy. There were 13 countries uh, that were going to be invading, that were going to be going on to the beaches in that, on, on that day. 
the communication that was needed to keep all 14 countries in line coordinated. And, and not only that, they had to set deceptions. They had like whole fake armies that were fake stationed in other parts of Britain in order to trick the Germans to think that the attack was coming somewhere else, that it wasn't going to be in Normandy. And so the planning that went in to D-Day was enormous. But none of us would think that the planning of D-Day was the difficult part. The difficult part was when 160,000 soldiers had to ramp up onto those beaches, charge the German fortifications and actually win the battle that eventually led to VE Day. Planning is important, knowing is important, but knowing is only half the battle and arguably the easier part. And the problem with familiarity is that we can come to the point where we think I know this and that's enough for me. If I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say like, oh, I know all the Bible stories. Oh, I went to a Christian school. Oh, I've heard this before. And having those phrases, those answers be like, there's nothing new that I'm gonna learn about this, that, that I'm gonna learn about the Bible in church this week, Charles. It's, it's unimportant. And that attitude is kind of the, uh, the excuse that's given. No, I know this, I don't need to do it. I, I know what I need to do. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I'd probably be like five or 10 bucks richer, uh, but it'd be a satisfying five or 10 bucks. James here is saying, don't let your familiarity with the Bible lead you to self-description, lead you to self-deception, excuse me. Knowing without doing, James gives the illustration, is like looking in a mirror and seeing all the things that are wrong with your morning self, your teeth aren't brushed, your hair's out of place, you're kind of looking nasty. Uh, you look at yourself in the mirror and you just realize, okay, and you walk off without making any changes. James says, that's stupid. The mirror's there so you could actually do something about the thing that you see in front of you. Fix that business. Don't be deceived by simply saying, we know the Bible. Familiarity with the Bible may lead to self-deception, but as it comes to our freedom, James makes this promise. Doing leads to freedom and blessing. Doing leads to freedom and blessing. In verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, Notice this phrase, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a paradox here. James uses this phrase, the law of liberty. And for many of us, that doesn't make any sense. You're saying uh, there's a law that leads to freedom Specifically, I think we have two reasons, especially in this room, why we have a problem with what Paul's saying, or excuse me, what James is saying about the law of liberty. One, we're Americans. And just the street level understanding of freedom is that nobody gets to tell me what to do. I'm free, I'm an American. The second reason that I think that we have problems with something like the law of liberty is because we live in Sigmund Freud's world now. 
I, I do not have a deep grasp of psychology, uh, but from what I have read and have understood, uh, and a lot of what I've stealing from other pastors, specifically John Mark Comer. If you wanna go look up the slavery of freedom on YouTube, that'll be a helpful, uh, helpful context for just this idea of how law and freedom work together. But here's, uh, here's what I mean by saying we live in Sigmund Freud's world now. Uh, Freud, I understand, got almost everything wrong he got a few things right, but right or wrong, he has provided some foundational ideas that we have embraced in our current day and really have defined how we understand a lot of things in life. One important part of his psychoanalyst is, has to do with our sexual desires. He said that the most important desire in a human is our libido which includes not only our sexual desires, but also just our desire for pleasure in general. And the thing with libido is that it's so strong that our society has to put some boundaries on it. Otherwise that sexual desire just, just it becomes an all consuming desire and it ruins the society at large. And so Freud's idea was that parents, teachers, other authority figures would put in restrictions around this libido, around this sexual desire in order to repress those desires so they don't become harmful. But here's the key idea from his, from his philosophy. That the repression of desires is the basis for all neurosis. Or said another way, it's this. When anyone in authority says no to an authentic desire, that is what makes you unhappy. Any rules, any restrictions, any like boundaries on expressing yourself, especially as it relates to your sexual desires, that is what leads you to be unhappy. For Freud, human beings were animals and as animals, we are run by instinctual desires for pleasure. And when we repress those desires, we suffer. With the wide adoption of his ideas, significant changes in our world exist of how we view repression of our desires. Comer said it this way, what generations before have called chastity, we call oppression if it's externally imposed and repression if those desires are internally opposed. All that to say that because we live in America and because we live in Freud's world, we come to this idea in James where James talks about a law of liberty. And we say, no, 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 no. I want Autobahn freedom. I want no speed limits. I want pedal to the metal. I just wanna be able to do whatever it is that I want. There's no such thing. There's a contradiction between law and freedom but that just doesn't make sense. Earlier, I said that in America, the street level of under, understanding of freedom is that I get to do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me what, what not to do. But in reality, the beauty of America is that our freedoms are enshrined in law. Our laws guarantee our freedom. And without those laws, we would not have the freedoms that we enjoy. That law and freedom are not contradictory. They must go hand in hand. 
It's not there in your notes, but I love what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. He says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In John's understanding, it's like, yes, to love God is to keep his commandments. But the beauty is that his commands are not burdensome. Our freedom is at stake. And James says, doing leads to freedom and blessing. The last part of being a doer, James says, when we do not do the things that the word teaches, it shows that our religion is worthless. Not doing shows our religion to be worthless. Just like with the rest of the passage, James isn't pulling his punches. He's clearly laying out some difficult truths that are hard to swallow. Here in the last two verses, he talks about three things. He talks about bridling our tongue or controlling our speech, visiting the widow and the orphan, personal contact and care for those who are hurting in this world and keeping ourselves unstained from the world, personal holiness. James says, if you're not doing these things, your religion is worthless. <clears throat> I get the same fear when I read this passage is when I read Matthew 25. You guys, you guys remember Matthew 25? It's the, it's the passage where Jesus is talking about judgment and he defines, divides all of the nations of the world, all of the peoples into two groups. To one group, he says, to one group, he welcomes in, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the group's like, what, what did we do to deserve this? And here's what Jesus says. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus says that the difference between the people that are entering into the kingdom of heaven and the people who are not are based on the list of things that they did. To the group on the other side, he says, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. Charles, are you saying that it's doing things that will save me? No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying with James that it's the implanted word of God that saves our souls. But that implanted word of God leads to a fruit of a loving life. Love for those around us so that we don't get angry. Love enough to control our language. Love that causes us to care for the vulnerable. Love that causes us to say no to temptation that degrades the image of God within ourselves and others. <clears throat> the credibility of our religion depends on whether or not we are putting our faith into practice. And honestly, uh, I think that at some level, we all know that this is true. That, that whether or not we are credible as Christians depends on whether or not we are living out our faith. 
whether or not we are doing what Jesus tells us to do. And again, our salvation is not dependent on it. We are saved by the implanted word of God, but the evidence that that, that word has been implanted in us is a life that leads us to love others. And honestly, I'm so glad to be part of Venture because Venture as a church enables me to put these things into action. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was able to take a group of students to Mexico. And honestly, uh, it was an expensive trip. It took all of ski week and I wasn't able to go skiing. And especially this year, that was painful. It was a 15 hour drive back in the rain. Uh, the grapevine was closed. We had to go one-on-one. It was going like 20 miles an hour for hours at a time. And the whole trip, I was just like, Bruh as difficult and expensive and as long as the trip was, is valuable because that, that trip gives my faith credibility. It's putting something into action. That trip is valuable because I got to teach students who were able to come on the trip that their faith earns credibility when they actually put in the work, when they show that the implanted word of God springs up to love for others. I love being part of a venture because it just seems like every week there's something new, whether it's generators being sent to Syria so churches can help with people who are there in the earthquake or apartments being renovated so people who are homeless can be able to come into the apartment and have the safety of four walls around them or it's funds that are being sent around the world for global missions. I love being part of a venture because it gives me a way to put credibility to my faith. James says, if there's no actions, you show your religion to be worthless. And so the, the summary of James' message is just, <laughs> just do it. As we end this morning, uh, we're gonna end with taking communion. And I'm thankful for this extra time that we have to wrestle with, with what James has said in this passage. Communion is a time for us to remember. It's a time for us to reflect. So as the music begins, would you take a moment to remember what Jesus has done for you? We can have the word of God implanted in us because the word that became flesh was broken for us. Would you reflect on your relationship with the word? I'm not talking about Bible worship, but I don't think it's an accident that Jesus equated himself, the word become flesh with the word. And I think that for many of us, the way that we react to the written word with, with how we are receiving it, how we are obeying it, is in many ways connected to the way that we receive and we obey our Lord and our Savior. So this morning, as, as we sing, would you reflect on your relationship with the word? Is there anything that God's been calling you to do that you've been fighting him on it. Like, God, I don't wanna do this. 
Are you receiving with meekness the implanted word of God? Are you looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevering? Are you being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who, is, who acts? We have a moment, we have some time. Let's roll all those things over in our head. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.